0: Well, I am uh, excited for the core text uh, this evening. Um, Luke 24, I know that for those of you who have been going through Luke with us, we're quite a bit ahead of where we were last time. Don't worry, we will not fail to cover all of the in-between parts between now and Luke 24. Um, But because today is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we want to take time to look specifically at the account of the resurrection, which is detailed here in Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. One of my favorite things or one of my favorite types of stories that can be told is what's called an origin story. And for those of you who watch uh, TV shows or movies or read books, all of the famous heroes or all of the famous characters that you have, before long it'll be, they'll come out with an origin story of that character if they haven't started out with an origin story. And we can all think of famous origin stories for different characters. You can think of Batman, right? His origin story is in a dark alleyway. His parents are murdered, and then this is something that leads and puts his life on a whole new trajectory, which begins to inform who he is and what he becomes. Uh, Another origin story, which is very famous, is uh, Spider-Man, right? For those of you who don't know Batman, hopefully you know about Spider-Man. He gets bit by a radioactive spider, and then what happens is it informs his power set, what he's able to do, what his capabilities are, and then the whole story of Spider Man is really based on and founded in his origin story. Well, the resurrection, which we see here in Luke uh, 24, is what we would call the origin story of the Christian church. This is the beginning, the power set, the starting point of what would later come to be known as the church, which would grow for the next 2,000 years, and it lands where we find ourselves today, where a large majority of the globe has been Christianized. And this started, remember, with one man who was crucified on a cross and his disciples, all the ones who were near him, were scattered. And from this point on, the origin story begins, and Christ resurrects from the dead, and the rest is history, right? You have 2,000 years of the church growing and expanding. So the resurrection is the origin story of the Christian church, and the resurrection particularly has a lot of promises and a lot of implications that we could look at and things that are guaranteed with us, for us, in the resurrection. But there are four specific promises I want to look at today that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees for us who are in Christ and who are followers of Christ. So we're going to look at those four uh, promises in turn. Again, this is not an exhaustive list by any means. There are many things that the resurrection is important for. Uh, But we're just going to take a look at these four today. So the first one of those uh, is the promise of regeneration. The promise of regeneration. So the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees for us what we would call regeneration. For those of you who know much about theology, regeneration is a very fancy way, or is a very fancy term for what Jesus describes to Nicodemus as the new birth. When Nicodemus, one of his secretive disciples, comes to Jesus at night, because he's under the cover of dark, he doesn't want to be found out by his other Sanhedrin friends, he goes to Jesus and he asks him a question in John chapter 3, and he says, How is it that I will obtain eternal life? And Jesus says to him, You must be born again, if you are to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes back and forth and he says, how is it that a man can be born again? That doesn't make sense, Jesus. And Jesus clarifies his teaching by saying, I'm not talking about a bodily rebirth. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And so you might be wondering, how is it that the promise of regeneration for us is guaranteed in the resurrection? Uh, as First Peter uh, chapter one verse three says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The new birth we are to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The new birth is guaranteed to us, sign sealed and delivered by the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus from the tomb, reigning." and living today. And this is connected with another teaching of Paul where he writes in Philippians chapter 3 verses 10 and 11, he says that he strives it, and he says that he may know him being Jesus and the power of his resurrection and that he may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's argument, Paul's thrust in his life is to obtain The resurrection of the dead, his regeneration, his new heart, his new birth is inspiring and driving him towards this new life that is in Christ Jesus, founded in and primarily obtained by the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The new birth, which is identified uh, to Nicodemus, and we would later come to call it theologically regeneration, it answers one of the big questions that you find in the scriptures. One of the big questions you find in scriptures is in Genesis chapter 3, very early on, a problem is introduced, which is that there is the fall of humankind. Humankind falls, it finds itself enslaved to sin through our first father, Adam. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, and the rest of the story of Genesis follows the depravity of humanity, going deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. And it seems like this spiral is continuous. And then God grabs Abraham out of that spiral, and he makes a promise to him that he will have children and offspring forever. And then if you trace Abraham's children, they find themselves not too far after that, enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And then they're delivered from Egypt, and they're led through the wilderness, and it's not long before they find themselves apostate again. And then they enter into that promised land that the Lord gave his people. And it's not long that they're into the promised land, and then they have no more judges or kings to rule over them. And it says that the next generation rose up, and they forgot who God was. And we have this continuing cycle of sin, this huge problem, which is evidenced in humanity And this is a huge problem because the the thing that is becoming increasingly clear is that it doesn't matter how many times God gives us a second chance or a new start or another try, humanity is doomed to fail. The theologians would later come to call this original sin, that sin has bound our hearts and bound our wills in such a way that although we might think we can do good things, that although we might think we can strive towards God, we're actually bound and enslaved to sin. And so the new birth is an important teaching of the Christian church because Christ promises that through his Holy Spirit, he will make our hearts alive again with Christ. And you might be wondering, well, how are we guaranteed that our hearts are going to become alive again with Christ? Well, look no farther than a God who resurrected his son from the dead. A dead man becoming alive in body is proof that God has the power to take a dead heart and make it alive and sensitive to him and responsive to him. The regeneration of the human heart from death to life is evidenced by the regeneration of the human man, Jesus, from death to life. And it is important that we know that God has the kind of power to make dead things alive again. And so so he does with all of our hearts. And so the question is very simple, which is, do you know that new birth? Do you know the power of the new birth? Have you experienced the regeneration of your heart? to believe in faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, to be responsive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, to look in faith on the cross and say that I don't know how or I don't know why, but I believe that that sin somehow, my sin was paid for on that cross and that Jesus died in my place. So long as he lives in his life, we live in our hearts. So long as he lives and reigns in heaven, we are guaranteed that we are alive in Christ in our hearts and that one day when we die, we will also be resurrected again with the son. This is the promise of regeneration, which is guaranteed to us in the resurrection and the the rise of Jesus from the grave. The second promise that we have within the resurrection, the second guarantee that we have, is the promise of justification. The promise of justification. Now, for those of you who, again, uh, are not familiar with that theological term, justification is what theologians talk about when they say, how is it that as man can become right with God? How is it that a sinful man with a sinful heart who has a long history of sinning could become right with God? Because of the big problem in our lives, which is that even if right now, this day, you decided that you were going to do as good as you could, right now you walk out of here, you sell everything you have, you go live somewhere, you feed the poor, you donate all that you have to charity, you live the most pious and, uh, and holy life that you could. You never sin again from this moment forward. The problem is, you still have a backlog of the last X amount of years that you've been alive of sin that still has to be paid for, that still has to be accounted for. And so there's a problem with living a holy life and doing better, which is that sin somewhere in our lives has existed. There is no person who's ever walked this earth that has walked sinless, save for the one man, Jesus Christ. So justification is the theological term that addresses the question, how is it that a holy God can make sinners sinners? right with him? How is it that sinners are justified before God? Justification is ultimately realized in Jesus's death on the cross, but there's a question which I know that as as people who've largely grown up in the church, we don't typically ask, so I'll pose it for you to think about. How do we know that Jesus's death satisfied the wrath of God? How do you know that the death of Jesus satisfied God's wrath? Is it because a Sunday school teacher one day told you that the wrath of God was satisfied? Is it because you know the hymn in Christ alone where it says that on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied? How do you know that the, res- that the death of Jesus on the cross actually completed the payment that was owed? How do you know? Romans 4, verse 25 says, He who was delivered for us for our trespasses and raised, he was raised for our justification. He was delivered for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. The resurrection is how we know that Jesus, when he died on the cross, met the full payment of the wrath of God. The resurrection is the guarantee that Jesus' death paid the full wrath of God. And that's good news for people like you and me Because we can look at Jesus who's alive right now. He's alive today. And we can look and remind ourselves of the fact that whatever debt I owed, it was paid in Jesus and it was paid in full. There's no outstanding balance. Jesus didn't pay off a large portion of the debt that we owe God and we have to do a little bit more to pay the rest. He paid the debt in full. Past sins, present sins, and future sins, he paid them in full. The the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is the promise of our justification. It is the guarantee that you and I are justified before God. If he had not raised from the grave, what proof would we have that, the justi- that we are actually justified before Christ? We are justified in Christ before God. What proof would we have that we are justified? We would have no proof. You see, one of the stores that my wife and I like to go to when we buy groceries, we like to go to Costco. And at Costco, you buy a bunch of groceries and then you get a receipt And then between where you check out and where you exit the building, there's a person who stands there and he checks with a Sharpie typically that your receipt is good, that the things that you have you actually paid for. Now you have a problem in Costco, which is that if you lose your receipt sometime between when you checked out and when you're leaving, you have to somehow make amends for the fact that you don't have proof that you actually purchased all of the things that you have in your cart. Jesus being alive today is our receipt When you get to heaven one day and God asks you, why should I let you in? You point to the receipt, which is the living, breathing Christ. And you say, that is the proof of purchase. That is the guarantee that the purchase has been made and made in full. That everything that I have here has already been blood bought by the lamb. He's the guarantee. He's the receipt of our justification. And that is the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. The living, breathing guarantee. God's clear approval of Jesus Christ is evidence of the fact that he will have an eventual approval of you and I on the day of judgment. His clear approval of Jesus' death on the cross by his resurrection is clear approval that he will one day give you and I the thumbs up and raise us from the dead and give us into heaven. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say it this way. It says, And being found in human form, he, being Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Jesus humbling himself to the death on the cross allows God to exalt him, which means that God has approved of the sacrifice and has raised him from the grave. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he says it this way. Paul says that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That just as Jesus humbled himself and died on a cross and he was resurrected by the Father, so you and I who are in Christ follow that same pattern, dying to our own sin and being resurrected in Christ before the Father. God raised Christ and Christ is the living signed seal that you and I have a payment that is no longer outstanding. We have no longer a debt that we owe to God. If he approves of Christ and we are in Christ, then he approves also of you and I. That hymn says, uh, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And the question is, how was the wrath of God satisfied? Well, if you look to the next verse, it says, and then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave, he rose again. That is the proof that the wrath of God was actually satisfied on the cross. There's no more payments to be made. You see, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, they offered up lamb after lamb after lamb, year after year after year, doves and goats and bulls, and all of the sprinkling of this blood never cleared any one of their sins. But Jesus Christ, when he's delivered up on the cross, he dies one time as the sacrifice and is resurrected as the guarantee that that was the final payment to be made. No more payments due. All of the old sins, all of the new sins, everything has been paid in that one man, the man Christ Jesus, being offered up as a sacrifice for sin. That is the promise of our justification. The bodily resurrection of Christ also is the promise of our eventual glorification as well. Now again, glorification is another big word, but all of that means is one day you and I will be resurrected in perfect bodies with perfect spirits, and we will be seated with God in heaven. That is glorification, that we are justified, and then we are sanctified, and then ultimately we will be glorified, just as Christ was glorified, with new bodies, not like our old bodies, which waste away and eventually die, but with new resurrection bodies. This is the promise of glorification. In Luke's account here in chapter 24, he focuses on the bodily resurrection. In fact, if you were to continue to read the rest of chapter 24, Luke takes very long times to show us the details of Jesus is a physical human body in his resurrection. He's not a spirit. Other accounts will talk about how Thomas can touch his wounds and touch his side and that Jesus will sit there and eat fish with the disciples. A spirit can't do that. Jesus walks with his disciples down the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke. He's walking with them. He's not floating. He doesn't show up and pop up in different places. He's walking around like a body does, a physical real-life body. Luke takes a lot of pains to show us of that bodily resurrection. And that's important that Christ resurrected in bodily form. And if you want to know why it's important, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 makes Paul's probably most extensive argument on the importance of the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus. And we're going to be down in verse 20. Verse 20 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians says it this way, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised up from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ." Here he uses a farming analogy to talk about that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, which means there are later fruits to come of this resurrection, and that Christ just paves the way in the first way, and that he promises that there will be others who are then in Christ who are also to be resurrected just as Christ was resurrected from the dead. Paul, in another one of his epistles, will make the argument that if there is no physical resurrection that we are of all people most to be pitied, Because we live our lives in vain. We waste our time here on Sunday if Christ is not bodily resurrected. Because the bodily resurrection is the guarantee that one day you and I will be raised up in body to be made alive together with Christ. And there's some implications here for the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus. First and foremost is that as a church, we should be concerned with the physical needs of those who are around us. As we do ministry... We have to recognize that people are not just spirits, they are also bodies. And God created the pinnacle of His creation, humans, as both body and soul. And so that we, as we witness and we do ministry, we are to meet the bodily and the spiritual needs of individuals. Which is why the Christian church was the first place to start orphanages and start adopting children who were abandoned by their parents. And that every hospital that was ever founded, the vast majority of them have been because of Christian organization and Christian charity. Because Christians are convinced that the body does matter. The body actually makes a difference. We're not spiritualists in that we think that one day the actual pinnacle of humanity is for us to be stripped of our bodies and become fully spirits. We will be resurrected with physical bodies. And so what that means is here on earth we begin to live out the kingdom of God by taking care of the body. It has another strong implication for us, which is that if every single person is going to be resurrected in bodily form, in a physical, real body, there's a really strong implication here, which is that the greatest way for you to meet the physical needs of any person is to share with them the gospel. Because all will one day be resurrected in a physical body. So as so far as you feed the hungry and you clothe the naked and you take care of the sick, those are all temporary measures to take care of the body. The most permanent intervention to take care of the human body is to share with them the gospel and convert people to salvation. Because one day, all those bodies that you take care of in this life will pass away. And those who are in Christ will be resurrected with new bodies and those who are not in Christ will also be resurrected with new bodies And that God will come then and judge both the living and the dead to either an eternal life with that physical body or an eternal death with that physical body. So if you want to take care of the physical body of anyone in the greatest way possible, share with them the gospel of Christ Jesus. Because one day that physical body will either enjoy the eternity of heaven and the glories therein or the sufferings of hell and the pain therein. The greatest way to meet the physical needs of any person is to witness to them the gospel. So not only do we value bodies as we do ministry, but we, do never, we never forsake the sharing of the gospel. And you don't settle for anything to call it ministry if you're not in that sharing the gospel with other people. You can do many good and many charitable things, but without the gospel being shared, you are really wasting your time. The fourth and final promise that we're going to look at for the resurrection is the promise of sanctification. Now, this one has the most implications the sanctification is the fourth and the final promise that the resurrection guarantees us. That you and I will be one day sanctified, which means that we are going to be growing in holiness and growing into our eventually glorified state. As resurrection, as, as new life happens, you experience the new birth, then you are justified, and then you are sanctified, and then you will eventually be glorified. The promise of sanctification is probably the most practical of the guarantees of the resurrection. As that same uh, hymn will say at the very end, it says that there is no guilt in life and no fear in death, that this is the power of Christ in me. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Those are the implications of the bodily resurrection as far as it relates to sanctification. That you and I, when we experience sin and we experience shame, We don't experience it to the point where we have ongoing guilt and ongoing shame where we do not go to repentance and then to right standing with God. There is no amount of sin that can separate you from the love of Christ because remember, so far as Jesus is out of the tomb and living, there is no amount of sin that you can do to out-sin the risen Savior who's already paid for all your sins. The promise of sanctification is that you and I will have no guilt in this life. Not that we don't in our old selves sin and experience guilt, but that we, walking in Christ, will eventually have that guilt turn eventually into repentance and eventually again into right standing before God. There is no amount of guilt that you can feel in this life that is going to be out sinning Jesus. No guilt in life. The other statement there is that there is no fear in death. There is an implication that as Christians, we do not fear death as other individuals might. And so both of these implications, no guilt in life, no fear in death, speak about really two powerful realities of sanctification. The first reality is our pursuit of personal holiness, our battle against sin, the war that we wage against our fleshly bodies. And this is a really profound implication as far as the day-to-day life is lived out. We are promised in our lives the same exact power that resurrected Christ Jesus from the grave. The same exact power. We are promised that this power, that resurrected Jesus from the grave, is alive in you and I today as Christians, as we walk and we live our lives. Remember back to that illustration of the origin story, right? The initial origin story of any hero determines really their power set. right? Spider-Man is bit by a spider and so he can run and he's got super strength and he can jump really far and he's also got really good reaction time. Right, All things that are kind of very far drawn out implications of you know, being bitten by a spider. It follows roughly that pattern. As Christians, our origin story being in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the same exact power set within us that Christ Jesus had when he resurrected from the dead. Which means new life, new bodies, new power to wage war against sin. You see, the old man who was in bondage to sin had no ability to fight sin. We could uh, religiously try to slave away and beat our bodies into submission only to let sin win once more. We could try to put up all kinds of stipulations. We could wake up earlier, try to discipline ourselves. We could say, and we're going to promise ourselves, we're never going to do that thing again. But the old man has actually no power over sin. Sin kicks our butts every single time. The old man is completely powerless against sin. But Paul guarantees us, that in the new life, the new resurrected body of Christ Jesus, we can look to that and see our hope and the implication to wage war against the sin which previously reigned in our mortal bodies. Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 13 say it this way. He says, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must, as a Christian, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, which means... Dead to sin, you no longer interact with it anymore. And alive to Christ, which means just as Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, you are resurrected with him in his power to wage war against sin, to start beating it in its own game. He says, therefore, the implication is, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. The implication is that if Christ is resurrected from the grave, the implication for us is that our physical bodies are a battleground where we wage war against sin. And Paul's exhortation to the Roman church is let not sin reign in your mortal body. Don't join yourself to sin. Don't submit your bodies to sin. There was an early church heresy which is called Gnosticism which said that you could do whatever you wanted with your bodies and as long as your spirit wasn't tainted by that thing, you would be fine. So you'd have all kinds of weird practices, the chief among them being that Christians would go sleep with temple prostitutes thinking that, you know, it's just a physical body. It's eventually going to die anyway. All things that are physical are sinful inerrantly. But our spirits, those are going to be raised with Christ. So those, as long as that's not tainted, that's okay. Paul's exhortation is, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Don't give in to sin in your mortal body because there's implications which is that your physical body is far more than something that's just going to pass away. We are resurrected to new bodies but it carries some shell of the old as well. The new body carries some shell of the old. When Christ Jesus is resurrected with his new body, he still has the scars of his crucifixion. Now he reigns in a perfect body to the point where when the apostles are meeting him after the resurrection, a lot of them have a hard time recognizing him at first which means that a man who lived his whole life with no place to sleep, not a lot of food to eat, he lived a very uh, non-envious life. He didn't live a life of comfort. Wasn't well fed, wasn't well slept. And so his new resurrected body is so different from his old body, his emaciated, starved, beaten body, that they have a really hard time recognizing who this person was. There's enough similarity there where eventually, when they look closely enough, they can recognize Jesus but it was probably a much younger, more fit version of the Christ because his body did not have any of the effects of aging, didn't have any of the effects of the the starvation that he had put himself through. That 40-day fast probably carried with it a lot of physical implications. He didn't have any of the scars of his beating or of his crucifixion, save for the hands and the side. So this physical body carries some part of the old and a lot of the new. And as Christians, we can use this to understand how we should not let sin reign over our mortal bodies because we are going to be resurrected physically which means you need to wage war against sin now in your mortal bodies you can't give in to the temptation of sin one of the things that is really tolerated in the church today is uh there's plenty of sins that are tolerated but there's the sin of pornography which is abundant in the church something like 70% of Christians have at some point or another watched pornography and partaken in it. And one of the justifications for this is, well, it's just a video. It's not something I'm actually interacting with. I'm not actually cheating on anyone. I'm not actually in my body sinning against someone else. But it's very much echoing the Gnostic heresy of the early church, which is that so long as my soul is not tainted, it does not matter what I do with my physical body. And I want you to know that that is not true. The resurrection implies that we walked in sanctification and that that sanctification has evidences of our physical combating sin. We physically wage war against sin, which is why one of the spiritual disciplines that we practice here is fasting, because we enslave our bodies and we beat them into submission so that we do not sin in our bodies. We die to self, we die to comfort, and we live to Christ. We don't sin in that way. Because you're not supposed to let yourself uh, be, you you don't let sin take over and make you obey its passions. You actually tell sin what it's going to do, which is that it's not going to be able to reign over your body. You don't let sin take over. In the new life, you have power to guard your own body, to decide your own fate. Because Christ has given you his power to reign in your mortal body. Do you know that power that Christ speaks of? Is that true of you? As a Christian, one of the evidences of our salvation, one of the evidences that we are in Christ, is not so much that you yourself can point to the exact day and time of your conversion of faith, or that time that you prayed a sinner's prayer. One of the best evidences of your conversion is, do you bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? Can people who know you point to your life and say, this person is growing in holiness? They desire truth. They're more patient than they were three years ago. Is this person someone who is growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Is your mortal body looking more and more like a body that is dominated by Christ and His power? Or do you bear the same marks as anyone else in the world around you, which is that you are a body which is reigned by the world and its power? Paul Washer is a famous preacher and he preaches a very controversial sermon where he says that Christians are not to try to be like Britney Spears or like the rest of the world, but to be like Jesus Christ. And in that statement, he summarizes a great truth, which is that as Christians, there are things that the world enjoys that we cannot enjoy. And that if you're a Christian for any length of time, whether that's immediately upon your conversion or in a growing in holiness, you become repulsed by some of the things that the world does. People talk about TV shows that you might enjoy, and you can't watch that TV show because you know the content that it contains. And so you don't enjoy that show anymore. Or you listen to different kinds of music and eventually you find yourself only listening to certain kinds of music because you realize that a lot of the music the world listens to advocates a lifestyle which is very ungodly, which is very immoral. And you can't enjoy music that talks about things that are so anti-God. And that as you live your life, you are growing in holiness in such a way That this is proof or evidence that you could submit and say that this is the evidence that I think I'm alive in Christ, which is I'm walking around like someone who has the power of someone who's alive in Christ. Now don't get me wrong, this is not religious righteousness where you try to manufacture or fabricate these types of things, because there's also an accompanying joy with this, which is that as you grow in sanctification, the, the power is actually a heart change first, and then a bodily change that responds to the heart change, which is to say that not only do you not do these things, but you actually don't find them as tempting anymore. You don't enjoy them anymore. You look at them and actually see them as not all that enticing anymore. A religious person who wages their body and beats it into submission in an order to fabricate their salvation will always find the thing of the world more attractive than the thing of God, will always find the things that the world has to offer more enticing than the things that God has to offer. If you are growing in Christ's righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit, the temptation is the first thing to go, and then the body responds naturally. It's an outflowing from the change of the heart to a change of the actions, not a change of the actions that's supposed to somehow affect a change in the heart. This is the whole of what it is to follow Christ. We follow Christ onto the cross where he was crucified and we die on that cross to our sin. We lay it at the foot of the cross and we say that no more do we want to struggle with these things. We say that they are worthless compared to the cost of falling in Christ. So we die to ourselves. And then we die. But not only are we to crucify it, we die. And then, as Christ was raised to life, we are raised to life and we no longer do things that dead people do because that would be weird. Because you're alive, you do things that living people do which is that you live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as Christ, when he resurrected from the dead, from the grave, he started walking around and eating food and enjoying company and teaching the people truth. That's what a living person does. He doesn't stay laying in the grave, wrapped in the tomb. That is the whole of what it means to follow Christ, to be resurrected and sanctified as Christ was. But there's another implication here, which is the implication, as I said earlier, that there's no guilt in life no fear in death. That's another promise that the early church had. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is another aspect of sanctification. Sanctification is twofold. It's really us beating the war that sin has to wage in our bodies. As you fight that battle, not only are you dying to personal sin, which can be lived out uh, in your body, sexual sin and other kinds of sins, but we are growing in a lack of fear of death which is to say that Christians are growing in a boldness to share their testimonies, which is to say that Christians are no longer struggling with the sin of unbelief. Because people who don't believe the testimony that they have will become quickly silent when they face ridicule and shame for the testimony that they've produced. But a Christian who's growing in sanctification, growing in Christ likeness, will become increasingly bold and increasingly outspoken about their faith and increasingly unashamed of the truth that they proclaim. Because they believe it more and more. They believe it more and more. A lack of boldness is evidence of the sin of unbelief. And there's really one person who we can take a look at in uh, in the New Testament who evidences this more powerfully than I think arguably anybody else does in the New Testament. Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, says he's going to go to war with Christ. He's going to, when the people come to take Christ and deliver him before the council and eventually crucify him, Peter says, I will go and die with you. And then as soon as those people come, true to his word, he draws his sword and he begins his combat. And quickly he's silenced by Christ and he's told to stop that. This is not that kind of revolution, Peter. And that it's not long after Christ is led away where Peter, Peter begins to experience this kind of doubt. And it begins to seep in and eventually, not even to the end of that night... He's confronted by a little girl who asks him, aren't you one of the followers of Christ? Aren't you one of those who is from Nazareth who followed that Christ? Aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter says, no, 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 I do not know him. And in three separate accounts, he denies Christ and says that he does not know him, and he actually swears by it. He says, I swear I don't know him. And three times Peter denies Christ Jesus as Christ predicted that Peter would. And Peter looks upon Jesus and they make eye contact on the third denial. And he realizes exactly what just happened which is the, belief, the, that the doubt, the unbelief has crept into such a point where the last three years of ministry for Peter and seeing all of the powerful miracles that Jesus did wasn't enough to make him stand firm in this moment. There wasn't a guarantee that he was going to be delivered up on the cross. There might have been some threat of that there was really just the guarantee that he would be associated with that criminal who was about to be hung up on a cross to be ridiculed by the Jewish high council. That is Peter's lowest point in his ministry. But Peter is the evidence of this conversion to faith and this no longer is he doubting, no longer is he going to struggle with unbelief, but as part of his sanctification, he's going to grow in boldness. And we can see this, so at the end of John is when you see Peter's denial of Jesus, and then if you flip over in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, let's take a look at what Peter has to say shortly after Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be in verse 22 of that chapter. Here's Peter, same guy who couldn't stand up against a little girl and tell her that he actually was an associate of this Jesus. And here is Peter, and these are his words. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell with hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Peter stands up before a crowd of Jewish people in the same city where Jesus was just delivered up to die and he says with full assurance and full confidence, he preaches actually a full sermon and then he closes it with that word right there which is, this is Jesus whom you crucified. Saying it to the crowd who's in front of him. This is very different than standing one-on-one against someone and asking them, do you know Jesus? He's saying, I know Jesus. I saw him do miracles. He's the son of God. He resurrected from the dead. It was plainly evident to everyone. David prophesied about it, and you crucified him. What happened to that guy? What's different about Peter at the end of John, and then you flip your pages over two chapters, and you get to Acts, and you see Peter? Whole new person. Bold in all kinds of different ways. I'll tell you what happened to Peter he saw a dead man get up from the grave and raised to life. And he believed that that was a viable testimony. He didn't kind of believe it. He didn't pray in hushed tones. He didn't even share it in hushed tones. He said, I'm going for gold. I'm preaching to everyone that I know that Jesus is Christ and you crucified him, guys. And he actually, through the power of the Spirit, brings many people to salvation through this exact sermon that he preaches right here. And then two chapters later in Acts chapter 4, in verse 5, he's delivered up to the high council, the very people that delivered Jesus up to the Gentiles. And as Jesus was delivered to this Gentile, the Sanhedrin high council, you remember Ananias and Caiaphas, the high priests, who Jesus had to stand before and he was silent before their accusations when they said, that, are you this Christ, the Son of God? And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? You see, Peter has just made a lame man get up and walk. And they're asking, by what power did you do this? Peter is now before the Jewish high council. And he says this, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. He's making it clear who he's talking to. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. His second sermon is now before the high council. He's stepped up a whole rank of people. He's gone from Jewish common people to the high Jewish council. The people who, when they found Jesus guilty, they actually delivered him over to the Romans to crucify him. And Peter sees the exact scene unfolding and he says, By the way, I want to be clear who I'm addressing. And then he boldly proclaims that it's Jesus by whom this man was healed. By the way, in case you forgot who Jesus was, he's the guy who you guys just crucified. He's the son of God. And there's no other name under heaven by which someone can be saved. Jesus. Peter is a whole new man with a whole new kind of boldness and a whole new kind of power that is coursing through his veins and out of his mouth. Peter experiences what we would call the promise of sanctification, which is not only is he beating sin in his mortal body, but he is growing in boldness, because he has a testimony that he is firmly believing. He believes this testimony so strongly that eventually he's crucified upside down, refusing to repent of what he said. And in fact, all of the apostles, except for John, who's who's isolated to Patmos, they're all martyred for their faith. John, actually, they tried to kill him. They couldn't, and so they just exile him because they couldn't figure out exactly how to kill him. James was being led away to his crucifixion or to his execution, where he'll be beheaded. And his testimony is so powerful that one of the captors who's with James becomes converted to faith, falls down before James, says, forgive me, I'm also a Christian. You shouldn't die alone today. And then both James and that captor are both beheaded at that moment. The testimony of these men is so powerful that later church theologians would say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is the evidence that this uh, is so sure, this is so powerful that people are refusing to reject it in death. There's no guilt in life. There's no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. You have church saints like Polycarp who hold themselves to the stake as they're burned because they say that I will have the love of Christ hold me to the stake. You don't need to bind me, but I will not reject Christ Jesus. And you have all kinds of beautiful testimony from all throughout church history, people who refuse to bow the knee to Baal, bow the knee to culture, bow the knee to anyone who is in power. And they said, without any caveat, without any noodling, without any beating around the bush, that it is Jesus Christ, he's the way of salvation. We believe him firmly. As a negative example, there are people today who believe in conspiracy theories. They they abound all over the place. People who believe they've seen aliens, seen Bigfoot, seen a Yeti. People who believe that the earth is flat. And they'll go so far as to pour millions of dollars into documentaries and they'll go on TV and they'll do interviews and they'll do all kinds of things. And then you have Christians in the church who believe in the resurrection but they're not bold enough to share it with someone in a coffee shop who's sitting next to them. Or they're not bold enough to go to that person because they're worried it might be awkward or they're worried their coworker might not look at them the same way anymore. But we have people who believe in conspiracy theories so powerfully that they'll pour millions of dollars into it make documentaries and go and make public fools of themselves. And yet Christians who believe in the power of the resurrection will not go to the same extent to prove something that they believe to be true. Boldness is evidence that you don't struggle with the sin of unbelief because the Holy Spirit has confirmed it to you to such a degree that it's real, it's undeniable, it's so undeniable that you're willing to stand before whoever will listen and tell them exactly what you believe to be true just like you wouldn't argue with someone if gravity is real or not, right? If someone's standing at the top of a building, they're ready to jump off. They're like, I don't believe that gravity is real. You're going to do everything in your power, no matter if they think you're crazy or not, to convince them that gravity is real because you know exactly what's going to happen when they jump off that building. Yet a Christian will take the Bible and they'll show it to someone and that person will say, I don't believe in the Bible. And the Christian will just tuck the Bible away, say, sorry, I'll, I'll try another means to get to you. If someone is robbing you at gunpoint and they pull out a gun and you go, I I don't believe in guns. And that person tucks away their gun and says, sorry, I'll find the next guy. It's not that you don't believe in guns, it's that that person doesn't believe in guns either. That they don't work. Because how guns work is it doesn't matter if you believe in them or not, they work. It doesn't matter if you believe in the Bible or not. If you're a Christian, you're demanded to use this as your means. This is the very word of God which moves forward in power. And yet so quickly we were willing to tuck it away and try other techniques and means to convince people of the truth. Would we have the very means of power at our disposal? Jesus being alive is the guarantee of all these truths that we've talked about. He's the guarantee of our regeneration, the guarantee of our justification, the guarantee of our eventual glorification, and the guarantee of our sanctification. Those are all promises that have been sealed in the resurrection. And at the end of the day, anyone can start a movement and get a few hundred years of history to their favor, and eventually they'll pass away. Gandhi eventually died. Muhammad, currently dead. Joseph Smith, he died. Confucius is dead. There is no other person, there's no other religion that claims that their person is still alive today. But Jesus is alive. He is not dead. They couldn't produce a body. He's no longer in the tomb. He is alive, which makes Christianity far different than any other religion. And the truth of that resurrection has all kinds of implications for us. And so I want you to be encouraged by that today. In fact, at the close of the the book of Acts, Paul is standing before his own testimony of high governors. He stands before Felix. And Felix asks him, Why are you here in front of me? Why are you imprisoned? What is the accusation of the charge against you? Paul says, make no mistake, I am on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. He makes no caveats. No one's debating whether Jesus was crucified and died. No one's debating that. They all saw it publicly. What they have a problem with is that he got up again. That's a problem. Because you can execute political leaders, you can execute revolutionaries, Typically, though, they stay dead and they stay not a problem. But Paul says the reason I'm on trial is not because Jesus was crucified. It's because he resurrected again. Make no mistake. And in fact, Paul says that three different times when he's before three different governors, and eventually he's executed in Rome for those beliefs. And as Christians today, as we believe that Jesus is alive, I think we should go forward with that same power, with that same encouragement, with that same boldness of the truth that we proclaim. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your word for us today. I thank you for the truth and the assurance that the tomb is empty. Lord, if the tomb is empty, that means that we who are in Christ have the very power of Christ within us, that we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to beat sin, to proclaim boldly, that we have an assurance that when we struggle with sin that we can look to Jesus and say that he paid our price in full, that we no longer owe a debt, so we can approach the throne with confidence in prayer. Lord, that Jesus resurrecting from the dead is the very evidence of the fact that we can be born again because he died and was raised and so our hearts were dead and are now alive. And Lord, I pray that these truths would not remain just in our head, but that they would really impact us in our day-to-day lives, Lord, that we would meditate on these things, that we would consider these things and ask ourselves the questions, do I really believe that this is true? And Lord, if we are thinking about that, that you would give us the power of your Holy Spirit to help our unbelief, to help us to become assured of the things that you have spoken through your word. Lord, you promise that you will give us the helper to assist us on our way. And so we pray that the very power of God would help us with our unbelief, with our sin, with our lack of faith. And Lord, that through your power you would reign through your people and cause this church and your church globally to continue to grow and to spread and to move in power through all the world. And that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, Lord. Amen.